Section 12 of The Rhythm of Life and Other Essays by Alice Maynell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Composure. Tribulation, immortality, the multitude. What remedy of composure do these words bring for their own great disquiet? Without the remoteness of the latinity, the thought would come too close and shake too cruelly. In order to the sane endurance of the intimate trouble of the soul, an aloofness of language is needful. Johnson feared death. Did his noble English control and postpone the terror? Did it keep the fear at some courteous, deferent distance from the center of that human heart? In the very act of the leap and lapse of mortality? Doubtless there is in language such an educative power. Speech is a school. Every language is a persuasion, an induced habit, an instrument which receives the note indeed but gives the tone. Every language imposes equality, teaches a temper, proposes a way, bestows a tradition. This is the tone, the voice, of the instrument. Every language, by counterchange, replies to the writer's touch or breath his own intention. Articulate, this is his note. Much has always been said, many things to the purpose have been thought, of the power and the responsibility of the note. Of the legislation and influence of the tone, I have been led to think by comparing the tranquility of Johnson and the composure of Canning with the stimulated and close emotion. The interior trouble of those writers who have entered as disciples in the school of the more Teutonic English. For if every language be a school, more significantly and more educatively is a part of a language a school to him who chooses that part. Few languages offer the choice. The fact that a choice is made implies the results and fruits of a decision. The French author is without these. They are of all the heritages of the English writer the most important. He receives a language of dual derivation. He may submit himself to either university, whither he will take his impulse and his character, where he will leave their influence, and whence he will accept their education. The Frenchman has certainly a style to develop within definite limits, but he does not subject himself to suggestions tending mainly hitherwards or thitherwards, to currents of various race within one literature. Such a choice of subjection is the singular opportunity of the Englishman. I do not mean to ignore the necessary mingling. Happily that mingling has been done once for all for us all. Nay, one of the most charming things that a master of English can achieve is the repayment of the united teaching by linking their results so exquisitely in his own practice, that words of the two schools are made to meet each other with surprise and delight that shall prove them at once gayer strangers, and sweeter companions than the world knew they were. Nevertheless, there remains the liberty of choice as to which school of words shall have the place of honor in the great and sensitive moments of an author's style, which school shall be used for conspicuousness, and which for multitudinous service, and the choice being open, the perturbation of the pulses and impulses of so many hearts, quickened in thought and feeling in this day, suggests to me a deliberate return to the recollectedness of the more tranquil language. Doubtless there is a place of peace. A place of peace, not of indifference. It is impossible not to charge some of the moralists of the last century with an indifference into which they educated their platitudes and into which their platitudes educated them. Addison thus gave and took, until he was almost incapable of coming within arm's length of a real or spiritual emotion. There is no knowing to what distance the removal of the appropriate sentiment from the central soul 
might have attained but for the change in renewal in language, which came when it was needed. Addison had assuredly removed eternity far from the apprehension of the soul when his Cato hailed the pleasing hope, the fond desire, and the touch of war was distant from him who conceived his repulsed battalions and his doubtful battle. What came afterwards, when simplicity and nearness were restored once more, was doubtless journeyman's work at times. Men were too eager to go into the workshop of language. There were unreasonable raptures over the mere making of common words. A handshoe, a finger hat, a foreword, beautiful, they cried, and for the love of German, the youngest daughter of Chrysale herself might have consented to be kissed by a grammarian. It seemed to be forgotten that a language with all its construction visible is a language little fitted for the more advanced mental processes, that its images are material, and that, on the other hand, a certain spiritualizing and subtilizing effect of alien derivations is a privilege and an advantage incalculable, that to possess that half of the language within which Latin heredities lurk and Romanesque allusions are at play is to possess the state and security of a dead tongue, without the death. But now I spoke of words encountering as gay strangers, various in origin, divided in race, within a master's phrase, the most beautiful and the most sudden of such meetings are of course in Shakespeare, superfluous kings, alas unparalleled, multitudinous seas. We needed not to wait for the eighteenth century or for the nineteenth to learn the splendor of such encounters, of such differences, of such nuptial unlikeliness and union. But it is well that we should learn them afresh, and it is well, too, that we should not resist the rhythmic reaction bearing us now somewhat to the side of the Latin. Such a reaction is in some sort an ethical need for our day. We want to quell the exaggerated decision of monosyllables. We want the poise and the pause that imply vitality at times better than headstrong movement expresses it. And not the phrase only, but the form of verse might render us timely service. The controlling couplet might stay with a touch of modern grief, as it ranged in order the sorrows of canning for his son. But it should not be attempted without a distinct intention of submission on the part of the writer. The couplet transgressed against, trespassed upon, shaken off, is like a law outstripped, defied, to the dignity neither of the rebel nor of the rule. To the letters do we look now for the guidance and direction which the very closeness of the emotion taking us by the heart makes necessary. Shall not the thing more and more as we compose ourselves to literature, assume the honor, the hesitation, the leisure, the reconciliation of the word? End of section 12. Recording by Valentina Vicelli.